king stood before the lesser king and was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And once upon a time, we were made to think that getting by and being a Christian kind of went hand in hand. You wanted to make something of your life. You wanted to be successful. You wanted to be a respected member of society, live out the American dream. Well, then you, you went to church and you followed the golden rule and you sang the songs and you put your hand on the good book and told the truth and you donated to good causes. It was the leave it to beaver, the father's knows best, the, the Mayberry era. And for a brief moment, some people thought or at least they imagined that actually being in the world and being of the world, well, those two are not really mutually exclusive. They kind of go hand in hand. And actually, whether or not Christians thought that way, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But I do know that in recent days, there have been those who have looked back on that black and white era, and they have had this desire to return to, to what we fondly refer to as the, the good old days. And we conveniently forget about the, the threat of nuclear war and the trappings of, of racism and all the other problems that existed back then. Somehow, in some way, we, we put a glossy uh, varnish over those old days and nostalgia sets in and we're led to think that if we could just turn back the dial, just turn back time a little bit, life would be easier. And then we come to realize that the reality is, what we've got to remind ourselves is that to be a follower of Jesus and to put your trust in him, to bow your knee before this king, well, it's to be fundamentally at odds with the world. And Jesus stands there before Pilate as he does so, he stands in direct opposition, not to the Roman Empire and not to the Jewish people, but to a worldwide system of rebellion that's embedded into the very fabric of human hearts, the hearts that have rejected their good creator, yes, the, the good order that he has established in his creation. They've rejected that to seek out and find joy and satisfaction and sustenance apart from him and outside of his design. We've talked about that many times here at Bethany. It is the kingdom of this world. 
It's the one in which there's, there's a new rule that's established and one that puts the old rule, God's rule, to the side. It's the one that was set up when the very first two of our kind said, you know, we'd rather go our own way here. According to Paul in Ephesians 2, we've all been following that course. And you know what it comes down to? We actually kind of feel at home in that place. But we have to be continually reminded, that is, those of us who have been called out of this world, continually reminded that that's, that's home, at least it used to be home. No longer, right? Because to come to Jesus is to renounce our allegiance to that old way and to turn back to the one that we were made to love and made to obey from the very beginning. It's to stand face to face with the king and to say with Thomas, maybe you, maybe you remember when he came to realize that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. Do you remember what he said? He said, my Lord and my God. And if that's truly who Jesus is to us, then we've got to recognize and begin living with the mindset that this world with all of its pleasures and all of its politics and all of its allure and all of its opportunity, this world is not for us. It is the theater in which we play out our God-given mission. James writes this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, th so this, this place with, in which you and I live and continue to exist, in this place, our main objective cannot be to recover the good old days. It's the battlefield in which the king's people bear his flag. And that is what we've been seeing here in the book of Acts. The, the people of the risen king, the ones that have been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light, they're out there. And they're seeking not their own desires, not their own dreams, but they are proclaiming, even at great risk to their own personal well-being, they're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called them. And we pick it up this morning in Acts chapter 16, verse 35. And we're going to see, once again, the clash of kingdoms. And we're going to get a few more glimpses of what it looks like to faithfully follow our king. So look with me at Acts chapter 16, verse 35. Verse 35 says this, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. So if you were here with us last week, you may remember that we left Paul and Silas where? In prison. That wasn't very considerate of us. They were imprisoned supposedly for causing trouble. When in reality, all they did was cast a demon by the power of the Holy Spirit. They cast a demon out of a slave girl who had been telling fortunes. And her owners didn't like that because their source of income, at least this, this very lucrative source of income, had just dried up. It disappeared. And now she wasn't telling fortunes anymore. She wasn't making money for them anymore. And so they were very, very upset 
They get, it, they get with the city officials. They have Paul and Silas thrown in prison, and that's where we left them. But the interesting thing is, as they're in prison, they're not all mopey and down as we would expect them to be. But instead, in the middle of the night, they're singing and they're praying. And they're, and they're praising God out loud to the point where the other prisoners in that area could hear them. And that's when God reveals to us through his word that there's a greater purpose going on here, yes? A greater purpose for them in that terrible place. And that was to open the eyes of the guy keeping the jail to the truth about Jesus. Not only him but all of his family. This is incredible. What is the truth, Pilate asked? Well, the truth is that the man standing before you is the one, the very one whom everyone should be bowing their knees before and looking to as their one and only hope. That is the truth, Pilate. Well, here in verse 35, we find Paul and Silas. They're still in prison the following day. They had been up all night. They were singing, and then there was this earthquake, and then their, their shackles and, and the stocks that were holding them, they, they, they fall off, and then the jailer is about to kill himself. They say, don't kill yourself. We're still here, and then they end up sharing the good news of Jesus with him, and then he's cleaning them up, and he's bandaging them up, and then, he, then they're baptizing him. They're baptizing his whole family. Then they're eating at his house in the middle of the night. What is this, two, three in the morning, and then they're back behind bars. What a night. These guys know how to party. It's incredible. Quite the evening. But then the next morning, these city officials, they gather together. And it appears that by what they're about to do, they, they want to let them go now. It appears that all they really wanted to do was calm down the crowd. Let's appease these upset slave owners. Let's, let's just, uh, get, just bring peace to the situation. Now let's release them. Get these guys out of here. They thought they had accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. So they send the police in. Let's send them out. Verse 36. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and, and go in peace. It seems like this new believer, this jailer, is really happy with this news. He's probably come to tell Paul and just like, this is the greatest thing. We've been up all night. This is the, what an incredible, this is a life-changing moment for me. Now you get to go. Isn't this amazing? And if I were Paul, I probably would have been very happy as well. This is the hand of God here. Yes, we were locked up, but now this amazing thing happened here. And, and, and clearly it was for the purpose of bringing this jailer to faith in Christ. Okay, I'm, I'm let go. Let's get on with our our work here. Very nice to meet you, Mr. Jailer. It's been real. I'm glad you're trusting in Jesus, but see you later. I'm out. But Paul doesn't respond that way. Verse 37 says, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And we go, Paul, what are you doing? <laughs> Hold on, Paul, what's going on here? Do you want to risk getting into more trouble here? You need to stop making waves, Paul. You need to know when to quit. You need to know when to cut 
and run. Have you ever felt that way? Like it's best to just, let's, let's just fly on out under the radar here. Let's do all that we can not to upset the people who hold the reins of power. You know, some people, they've come to think that when it comes to those in authority, our, our government authorities or whatever authorities might be out there, that Christians are not to make waves. They are never to question, they are never to critique, they're never to raise even the smallest objection because they've learned from the Bible that these people, the authorities that are out there, have been put in place by God. And it's very true. In Romans chapter 13, Paul himself writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. And so Paul affirms right there that it is, it is true that governments and presidents and, and kings and monarchs and all these people, they, they have been put in place by God. And you might even say they are gifts from God for the good of society. Wow, that's a tough one. Paul says himself that they're, they're there for a purpose. They're called, they're put in place in this, in this world where there's evil going on all over the place. There's bad behavior happening everywhere. They're put in place to restrain that evil. This is for the good of society here. And so what Paul is arguing here is that, when, generally speaking, authority is a good thing. So if you, you want to just say you're a Christian now, you just want to shrug off authority. You want to say, you know what, God's my, my king now, and I don't have to listen to any other earthly authorities here. I'm just going to get rid of them. I'm not going to pay taxes anymore. I'm just going to do my own. It's just me and God. I got my boss. Yes. Forget these guys, these clowns. Paul says, no, 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 no. God puts authority in place. You can't just shrug them off, even though he is now your king. They're from God. But there are some things that we need to realize about what Paul is saying here. It's important for us to recognize that even though authorities may be put in place by God, or he at least, at the very least allows them to be in authority, it's very, very important that we realize those authorities are not the ones that we are here to please. You see, their agendas and their dreams and their good favor, that's not our main concern. It's the high king. He's the one that we work for. He's the one that we want to please. We must be about our father's business like Jesus was, right? He's the one we want to please. In fact, secondly, we also need to realize that the authorities that may be in place even though God may have put them there, they aren't perfect, are they? I know that's a difficult one for you to realize. <laughs> They're not perfect. And when we see them misbehaving and acting in ways that are unjust, we need to call that out. And Paul writes, actually, in Ephesians 5.11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead... Expose them. These magistrates, these, these city officials here in Philippi, they had committed a big injustice by locking Paul and Silas up without a trial. 
They just wanted them to leave quietly, didn't they? Sure, they wanted them to leave quietly. Let's just, you know, we know we probably shouldn't have done this. Let's just, let's just get them out of here. But in Paul's mind, he must have been thinking, if they've done this to me, what's going to happen to those Christians that I'm leaving behind? There's new believers here. What's going to happen to this jailer? What's going to happen to Lydia? What's going to happen to our household when I leave? These, these officials, they're, we, they're, they're crooked. What's going to happen to them when I leave Philippi? And so when he has the opportunity, Paul takes a stand for justice. Notice, it's important for us to notice, he's not doing anything illegal here, is he? No. He's not going around tagging up the city with spray paint, protesting these people. He's not trying to gather people around and say, hey, look at these officials here. We need to overthrow these, these bums. No, he's merely calling them out. He wants to expose the wrong that has been committed. And so what does he do? Well, he pulls out his credentials and says, do you realize you've mistreated a Roman citizen? I'm a Roman citizen. Verse 38 says that when the magistrates found out, they were afraid. You better believe they were afraid. They were afraid because Philippi, it was only a Roman colony. They had been entrusted by the emperor to run this place and to run it in a Roman way. And they knew very well that if the emperor found out, if Rome found out that they had been mistreating Roman citizens, well, they could have been in really hot water. So verse 39 says, so they came and apologized to them. They come in person, the magistrates. And they took them out and they asked them, another translation says they begged them to leave the city. I'll bet I'll bet they begged them. They wanted this problem extinguished. They wanted it done away with. They didn't want anything to do with these these guys. And the faster that they could get them out of town, the less likely it was that there was going to be any more problems. What about those slave owners? They see them released from prison. They might start objecting. They might start getting everyone in an uproar again. We need to get them out as fast as possible. Now here again, If I were Paul, I'd probably be thinking, okay, okay, I'll go, I'll I'll leave. But it's important for us to see again, Paul doesn't do that. He didn't leave the jail when they released him. Nor does he just make his way out of the city when they say, you got to get out of here. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't leave the city right away, even though they're begging And that's because Paul knows that even though God may have been the one who allowed these earthly authorities to be where they are, his first allegiance isn't to them. It's not to them. Who's it to? It's to God. He's a citizen of another kingdom, isn't he? And his king had given him a higher mission, a higher calling than simply playing it safe in life, going with the flow and appeasing people who were over him. Loyalty to his king meant being about the king's mission and being for the king's people first. There's a priority here, isn't there? Priority. Christian, you and I, are a part of a clash of kingdoms. We are not here 
to make ourselves comfortable in the kingdom of this world. We are here to be all about the kingdom of heaven. As we share the hope of Jesus Christ and we make it our business to care for each other, his people. That's exactly what Paul was determined to do here. They beg him to leave the city. What does he do? Look at verse 40. It says, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they, they, they went to the church. The, the, the new, brand new church that's there in Philip. we're going to the church. It says they encouraged them. And then they departed. Do you see the priority? Caring for God's people, even at the risk of stirring up trouble, even at the risk of inflaming the disapproving eyes of those authorities of that town. Paul and his companions, they go straight to those new believers and they encourage them. Christians, it's important for us not to lose sight of our high calling that the king has placed on us. We are not here to earn the approval of earthly authorities. We'll do our best to respect them. Yes, subject ourselves to them. Yes, but we must must, must make God's mission and the care for his people our first priority. And that has implications. It, it, for one, it means we must never bow down to the idols that they put before us. Our authorities will come to us and they will say, bow to these things. Boy, that sounds like an Old Testament thing, doesn't it? With Shadrach, Meshach, I remember those guys. We can't bow down. They say, bow down. They say, celebrate here. They say, erect this flag. Erect this monument. Bow to this lifestyle that's opposed to God's good design. And we've got to say no. And we must continue to meet with God's people. Has there ever been a time where our government said, don't meet with God's people? I seem to vaguely remember something about that. We have to meet with God's people. We have to encourage them. We have to build up our fellow believers because these are the people that our Savior, our King, died for and loves dearly. And we must continue to bring the good news of our Savior to the public places, into the workplace, onto our campuses, the public squares. Even when people say, you know, that's really awkward for you to do so. That's really uncouth of you to do so. It doesn't matter. Of course, they're going to try to convince us, won't they? They'll try to convince us, keep your faith private. It's your thing. You can do it as long as it stays in closed doors. It doesn't go out there. Just like they told Paul, you leave the town. You get this thing out of here. That's an order the servants of the king can never follow. He calls us to be witnesses, doesn't he? Witnesses bear witness. <laughs> they do not hide their light under a basket. Their king says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When he says that, they've got to obey. Who's your king? Are you going to listen to him? Are you going to listen to them? Let your light shine. 
And someone says, wait a second, isn't this just going to make waves? I've heard pastors talk like this. Won't, won't that just turn people away? You know, we've got a strategy here for getting the gospel out there to our world and for bringing more people into our church. It involves making them very, very comfortable and turning the lights down just so and getting the brew of coffee just right and, and doing everything we can to just make this as inviting as possible. If we do go this route, I don't think that's very conducive. But that's not our concern, is it? It's entirely possible that we are going to be off-putting to people as we continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. That's not our concern, right? Ours is, but ours is not to question why, but ours is to do. And what if they try to shut us down? We go back to the book of Acts, don't we? And we see how time and time and time again, they tried to shut them down. Does God care for his people? He does. Friends, we're in the midst of a clash of kingdoms. Let's not pretend that it's anything else. We're not looking back on the glory days. We are looking forward to the glorious day when we will be with our king in paradise and reveling in his magnificent victory. Amen? Man, we could, we could just lay on this thing right there and, and be done, but, but we shouldn't do that because there's more here. Following your king, it means putting God's mission and his people first. It also means being willing to disrupt the status quo. Let's attack this section quickly. Uh, 17.1 says this. Now, when they had passed through Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great, a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, we don't know who Jason is. doesn't really tell us anything about him. Probably a Jewish man living in the city, heard the word of the Lord, believed, and now invited them, Paul, Silas, Timothy, into his house. What we do know is that Paul and his team are in the middle of another major disruption. How's this missionary journey going so far? Well, you know, considering that it started with an argument that split apart two missionary partners, and then God led Paul off, and then Paul wanted to go here, but then God said no, and then he wanted to go there, and then God said no, and then he redirected them across the Aegean Sea and sent them to this place in Macedonia called Philippi, and then he threw them into prison. Now he brings them to another city where a lynch mob is forming and on the hunt to get them, I'd say this isn't going so great. Verse 6, they could not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You catch how this mob describes them? 
men who are turning the world upside down. They're saying these men are a threat. They're a threat. These men have disrupted our city, our norms, our routine, our way of living. They're messing everything up. You know, they are a clear and present danger. Is that a fair accusation? When you think about it, Paul and Silas, they're stepping into town. They're intentionally bringing this message that calls people to turn away from the way that they were living before. Turn away from worshiping all of these foreign false gods and worship the one true God. For those who saw the emperor as, as a deity himself, as a god as well, 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 this would have been tantamount to treason here. In fact, later on, we know that, that worshiping Caesar or failure to do so is one of the things that leads to Paul's execution. By proclaiming the good news of Jesus, Paul and Silas, they're disrupting. If these Romans, they, 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 they listen, they start bowing their knees to Jesus, well, that would have meant they're going to start disconnecting from all of the norms and all of the customs that kept that community together, deeply ingrained and entrenched in that community. If they disassociated from uh, the community deities, well, then they, they, that would have weakened the, the religious norms and the religious power structure that existed there and upheld the, the cultural fabric of that city. If they no longer saw Caesar as their lord and master, well, well then what's going to happen to the stability of the government? You know, it's a good thing that your faith doesn't bring with it any of those kinds of issues, right? Oh, wait. What's going to happen if people start turning to Jesus at your school or at your work? And I'm not talking about just turning to Jesus and saying, Dear Jesus, please make my life a lot better than it is, or please bring me the love of my life no matter what strange shape or form that takes. No, no, no. I'm talking about a true relationship with Jesus where they realize I was in the kingdom of darkness and now I'm in the kingdom of light and my everything needs to transform here and change. What's going to happen? What's going to happen when people start standing up and being vocal for what they know to be right and against what they know to be wrong? What's, what's going to happen when, when people no longer are joining in with the gang and, and, and they're not going out and getting drunk and messing around and taking in that entertainment that is all about everything that God saved you from to begin with? What's going to happen when people start stepping up on the microphone and calling out injustice and immorality in city council meetings? And what's going to happen when, when, when boyfriends are, and girlfriends are going to have to turn to their significant others and say, we can't sleep together anymore because this is not honoring to God. We've got to stop. Friends, the gospel of Jesus is disruptive. It's disruptive. Jesus said, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth. Not come to bring peace, but a sword. Come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is going to disrupt everything. And maybe you have a severed relationship with a loved one because of Jesus. And you know full well that disruption. This is the clash of kingdoms. Friends, we are not here to build utopia. We are not here to affirm 
or leave everyone feeling good about the choices that they have made and the groups that they've associated with or the things that they believe about themselves or them, their own world. We're not here to do that. We're here on a rescue mission. You and I, insignificant people that are part of this rather small church hanging out here in Westminster, we're part of a rescue mission. We serve the high king. We may think that we're small in number, but there are millions who have gone before us. And by God's grace, there will be millions after us. And maybe even because God used us. Not here to build utopia. Not here to affirm. We're here on a rescue mission. We're here to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there's not any way other of being made right with God than Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the only way to escape the eternal fires of hell. It's trusting in Jesus. Is this what you signed up for? Following your king means making his mission as people a priority. It also means being ready and willing to disrupt the status quo with the gospel. But we're not anarchists, are we? No. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they may have been turning the world upside down with the message, but it wasn't about leading people to turn on their authorities or to take down their government. No, it's not at all. The religious leaders, they wanted Pilate to see Jesus as a threat to his power and the throne of Caesar. But were those the seats of power that he was after to take hold of? No, he was after the seats of power within every human heart. He came to lay claim and to realign the souls of those who have turned their backs on God and set themselves up as kings and queens. He says to Pilate, for this purpose I was born, for this, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says to him, what is the truth? And that leads us to our final point this morning. Yes, we're in the midst of a clash of kingdoms. But this is a battle that is marked by and must be fought with truth. If you look back at verse 2 of chapter 17, you see Paul goes into the synagogue at Thessalonica. And what does he do? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explained, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. What are his weapons of disruption here? What's he using to cause all of this trouble? It's not his brilliant ideas. It's not his thesis about this or that. It's not his powers of persuasion. No, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I didn't come with plausible words and human wisdom and lofty speech, but I came with the message of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's power. In Acts 17.10, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're sent away into the night to a place called Berea. Guess what they find when they go there? They find a synagogue. So where do they go? They go into the synagogue. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble, noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They received the word with all eagerness. There it is. Oh, they found the right place. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Boy, if Paul just came with his own philosophies, they would left, they'd be scratching their heads. Do I believe this? I wonder if this is true. Did Paul do that? No. He reasons with them, just like he did in Thessalonica, with the scriptures. They have a place to go to verify whether or not the things Paul is saying are actually true. And so here they are, 50 miles south of Thessalonica, this town of Berea, much less significant than the other town. One Roman author describes it as a place that's off the beaten track. But just like he did in Thessalonica, Paul does the same thing there, presents the truth as evidence. This is God's word. Look at this, and the Bereans eat it up. Friends, what do we have to offer if we do not offer what God has revealed in his word? What do we have to offer? We have nothing. Nothing. That's why when I, when I get ready to preach a sermon, I go like, I don't have nothing. If I haven't studied, I have nothing. There is no creativity. There's, there's nothing that this guy has to offer here. And if you, you get to know me a little bit, you go like, yeah, this guy's got nothing. <laughs> it's true. Because all we have is this, and this is all that matters. That's why someone like me can get up here and he can speak. That's why some of you could get up here and speak from this and it has authority because this is the truth. It's what Jesus came to bear witness to. God's word is the rock upon which we stand. It is the belt that holds all these things together. It is the sword by which we stab into the darkness that those who have ears that have been opened by the God's spirit may hear believe and be transformed. There are a lot of people out there who call themselves Christians and a lot of churches who claim to be right on. They're seeking to do good. In fact, they are doing good. They're spending money here and there and they're doing all kinds of projects and it's pretty cool. Genuinely desiring to give glory to God, but if they're failing to be all about God's word and leading people to see the truth that is in plain sight, They're wasting their time. The word of God is where it's at. The word of God is where the battle is fought and won. The word of God is the sword that we must wield and the resource that we must point people to look for themselves and discover what is true. Verse 12 says this. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as, as men. There is no respecter of persons. God calls who he wants. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they said, well, that's great. At least he's not bothering our town anymore. No. This is the clash of kingdoms. What do they do? They travel 50 miles down to Berea. They came there too, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. We're not exactly sure why, probably just encouraging the believers. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And there you go. (laughs) Next week, we're in Athens. It's going to be really cool. Friends, this is not our home. We're not here for fun. We're not here just to make friends and get along. 
or to bring back the good old days. We're not here for that. If we placed our trust in Jesus Christ, we bowed our knees to serve him, then we're part of this great clash of kingdoms. Welcome to the fight. Let's follow the king as those who have gone before us. Let's not be lazy. Let's not be complacent. Let's not be comfortable with the lives that we have been gifted with. I have been gifted with an incredible life with wonderful people in my life and wonderful things that I get to enjoy. They're a gift from God. You have been blessed in your own ways. We cannot get comfortable with this stuff. Like last week, we said we got to hold this loosely before all other allegiances and all other priorities. Let's make his mission, his people, our priorities. Let's loose our grip on our pursuit of comfort and prosperity and personal pleasure and be ready and willing to deliver the disrupting message of the gospel. Trust him for what he's going to do with it. And finally, let's arm ourselves with nothing less than the word of God, for that is where the, bot, the battle is fought, and that is what the people need. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of those who have gone before us. Lord, we pray that you continue to give us wisdom as we search out your truth and seek to understand what you have for us in our lives in this very confusing world of 2023. Lord, call us to yourself. Remind us that you are our king, that you have a plan for us, a purpose for us being here. Those of us who are young and those of us who are very old, we are still in this. And remind us that you are coming back for us. And there is a good, a great, a glorious day ahead. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.